Today's Old Testament text is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them, because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sin, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals or the immigrant who is living with you, because the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. khaki pants <clears throat> or wear a blue button-down shirt or and a jacket <clears throat> apparently this is the college church preachers uniform because <laughs> whenever Brent or Grant or Pastor Scott preach that is what they wear I came close I think I tried really hard I think Pastor Chelsea and I need to go shopping So, our text for today, John chapter 2, beginning with 13. <clears throat> I will say, I feel like I got the lectionaries, um, one of the hardest passages, so I got the short end of the deal, but we will, we will manage today. <clears throat> beginning with verse 13, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, 
as well as those involved in exchanging currency sitting there. He made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep. He scattered the coins and overturned the tables of those who exchange currency. He said to the dove sellers, get these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, passion for your house consumes me. Then the Jewish leaders asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? What miraculous sign will you give us to show us? Jesus answered, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The Jewish leaders replied, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But the temple Jesus was talking about was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. While Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs that he did. But Jesus didn't trust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anyone to tell him about human nature for he knew what human nature was. Well, let's just go ahead and say it. John is weird. He's a bit of an oddball. The first three gospels are very similar. So much so that scholars uh, believe that they were care, uh, sharing a common source. But John has gone rogue. For example, <clears throat> we find the story of Jesus turning over the tables in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. All toward the end of their books and placed in a different context. But John changes the rules on us. His is not a synoptic gospel. He is out on his own writing for us a theological masterpiece instead of an exact chronology. He is not just playing a video feed of what happened when. He is not helping us understand exactly what Jesus did in every chronological moment. He is writing an expose that reveals a hidden truth about someone. An expose is an investigative piece that reveals information which is shocking or surprising. Jesus is shocking and surprising. And so John's purposes 
are different. His context is different. For John, Jesus' cleansing of the temples comes after his very first miracle. It comes at a time of the first Passover of his ministry, not the third. It comes after a wedding. We might expect after a nice happy wedding that uh, he and his disciples might take a stroll around the lake or spend some time in the hills. But John turns us to a very intense, embarrassing, wild-eyed Jesus with a whip in his hand instead of a wine glass. Something in the temple courts has gone terribly wrong. We know the story of the very first Passover. The Israelites are prisoners in Egypt and they have been for hundreds of years. But God hears their cries and sends Moses to lead them out of bondage. We find God's hand in the great plagues which finally convinced Pharaoh to let them go. And the last plague brings their freedom. The firstborn of all the Egyptians die, which brings us images of dead, bloody babies. But God tells his people, put blood around your door and death will pass over you. So get yourselves ready. You're about to leave. And the meal of Passover has been celebrated every year since. The exodus from Egypt, the release from bondage, is not just a Jewish holiday. It is also a symbol to us of our release from the captivity of sin. Thanks be to God. But what is the rest of the story? We have the crossing of the Red Sea. God is faithful. The Egyptians who pursue them die. The Israelites are in need of water. God is faithful, water out of desert rocks. We have the Israelites in need of food, and God is faithful, manna and quail. We have Israelites in need of guidance, God is faithful. We have clouds and a pillar of fire. The Israelites are attacked, but God is faithful. The Amalekites are defeated. Three months go by. They reach Mount Sinai. The people are in need of spiritual guidance. And God is faithful. God gives them the law. I want to read just a couple of verses from chapter 19 before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, 
Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. And then God speaks. <clears throat> the law is given. And then in chapter 20, beginning with verse 18, after the commandments have been given, we find these words. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. But the people sinned and kept on sinning. In a few chapters later, we find them building a golden calf. The law did not keep them from sinning. The fear of the Lord expressed in fire and smoke and earthquake did not keep them from sinning. The fear of death did not keep them from sinning. And the very presence of God did not keep them from sinning. Whether God is in a tent or a tabernacle or a temple, the people keep on sinning. And so they continue to offer animal sacrifices. And so we enter the scene outside the temple where God's presence was supposedly thick. We enter the scene of the temple courts where Jesus, the divine one, sees 
the sins of the people right in front of him. And well, there's no nice way to say this. Jesus loses it. His anger moves outward and calls it like it is. Scholars have been asking for years and years, what is this scene about? Why did Jesus do what he did? Here are some ideas. Jesus reacted against the people who were profaning the temple. To profane something is to treat something holy as if it were common and ordinary. And the common and the ordinary can be taken for granted and abused. Taking something holy in vain. I think this is why when I was growing up in church, we could not run in the sanctuary. We could not sit on the altar. And we certainly mustn't sell anything in church on Sundays. Perhaps Jesus was reacting against the commodification of holy things. In other words, they were buying and selling sacrifices, cows, sheep, doves, as if it were a common marketplace, as if we all went out to buy our trinkets. They were cheapening grace. Some of you know that I am a church historian. I can't help but put something in a sermon. So we're going to go to the Protestant Reformation. One of the reasons Martin Luther was so upset with the Catholic Church is because they were selling indulgences, plenary indulgences. What does that mean? The people were given a paper that all of their sins would be forgiven past and future if they gave to the building fund. I think that might be a good way to raise some money, Scott. They were cheapening grace. It makes me think of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was in Germany during World War II. Tragically, he was in a concentration camp and was executed four days before the Allies won. Bonhoeffer has an interesting idea. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he talks about cheap grace. Cheap grace is when we know that God will forgive us, so we will keep on sinning because God will forgive us. 
And Bonhoeffer reminds us that even though grace is free, it is not cheap because of what it cost Jesus Christ. Perhaps Jesus reacted the way that he did because the poor were being cheated by the money changers. The poor could not afford a cow or a sheep. They could only afford a dove to sacrifice. And Jesus perceived that they are being cheated even more than the rich, cheated by the money changers. It's interesting that Jesus is hardest on those who were selling doves. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Japan to present a lecture, and then they had me cross the entire nation on a bullet train all the way across. And then they paid me. Uh, Japan is a cash society. And so they paid me as I got on the plane to come back to the United States. I didn't sleep that night. I flew into San Francisco, and in my pocket was 300,000 yen. And everybody told me, you need to exchange the money into dollars. Make sure, sure you get a good deal. There were money changers all over the airport. So even though I had not slept, I went to each money changer to see which one would give me the best deal. I soon found out that they all have the same exchange rate <laughs> and that I was not being cheated out of my 300,000 yen. And Jesus seeing the money changers who cheated the least of these ignited in him anger. Perhaps Jesus is reacting as a way of foreshadowing for us the inadequacy of animal sacrifices for the cleansing of sin which had to be performed annually. It was only one chapter ago in John that John the Baptist declares, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The end of the need of sacrifices. In the middle of this scene, the Jews, who were probably Pharisees, asked Jesus to give them a sign that he had the authority to act like that. But what Jesus says 
does not answer their question. What he says is scandalous. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. What in the world? Do you realize, Jesus, that it took 46 years to build this temple? You are talking nonsense. Here, John steps in and offers what Jesus meant in verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So in retrospect, after the resurrection, they understood that Jesus meant he would die and three days later would be resurrected. I believe that John also wants us to have an idea post-resurrection of what Jesus has really done. I want to think that John would know his book would be read and that we would read it. If we do, we will see what has radically changed. In Hebrews, we find these words. You haven't drawn near to something that can be touched. A burning fire, darkness, shadow, or whirlwind, a blast of the trumpet and the sound of words that made the ones who heard it beg there wouldn't be one more word. They couldn't stand the command. If even a wild animal touches the mountain, it will be stoned. The sight was so frightening that Moses said, I'm terrified and shaking. But you have drawn near to Mount Zion, the city of the living God heavenly Jerusalem, to countless angels in a festival gathering, to the assembly of God's firstborn children who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of righteousness who have made you perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sorry, sprinkled blood that speaks better than Abel's blood, Hebrews. The old covenant served its purpose, showing us our need for God. But the new covenant has changed everything, everything. Well, not quite everything. I want to mention two truths. When Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs that he did. 
But Jesus didn't trust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anyone to tell him about human nature, for he knew what human nature was. Jesus knew and knew well to know the motivations of the heart. And that has not changed. In our passage and in many others, Jesus knows that the people are motivated to follow him because of signs and miracles he performs. He is the new show in town. He knows not to trust himself to the crowd, for they will be fickle. And in the end, they all left him. They cry out, crucify him. Even the disciples deny and abandon him and flee in terror. I wonder how many of us are fickle and unsettled. We act as if we have no savior at all? Do we participate in profanity of taking whatever is holy and making it common? Do we cheapen the grace of God by not growing in grace? And do we cheat the poor and the weak do we objectify them or dismiss them because our hearts have grown cold and we are simply too busy? And so the first point here at the end, Jesus knows our hearts. Secondly and lastly this morning, in the Old Testament passage, God called for the people at the foot of the mountain to be consecrated, to wash their clothes. Their consecration was an external event. We know this because their human nature has not changed. We know this because soon they will construct a golden calf to worship. And despite God's continuing faithful to them, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are filled with greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish so that the outside may become clean as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, 
but on the inside are full, full of dead men's bones and every kind of impurity. They were cheating God, consecrating the outside, but betraying themselves on the inside. We still talk about consecration, but unlike the consecration of Moses' people and unlike the Pharisees that Jesus convicts, our inner consecration transforms us from the inside out. Consecration is kind of big in our tradition. It goes back 150 years to the holiness movement who put consecration in an extremely important place spiritually. Consecration in our tradition is matched with the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Consecration is the way that we devote our entire lives to God. All that we have, all that we love, all that we are. Consecration opens our hearts wide to all that God wants to do within us. We consecrate ourselves. God does the sanctifying. We consecrate ourselves and God changes the motivations of our heart. We consecrate ourselves. God brings victory. And so today, we are called by God to have clean hearts, which we cannot do on our own. Before you think consecration is easy to do, I want you to look within and be truly honest. Have you only washed your external clothes so that other people will see how holy you are? Or have you, me, devoted ourselves to God no matter what? Have I consecrated everything to God. It is then that God can do a sanctifying work within us and fill us with overflowing love that God pours into our hearts. The sacrament of Holy Communion is a sacred act 
The elements are symbols of the body and blood of Christ. The symbolism of taking communion can vary, and therein is its power. It can be a symbol of receiving all the grace that we need. It can be a symbol of celebrating our life as the community of faith. It can be a symbol of the feast that we will eat together at Christ's coming again. Today, as we ponder the blood and flesh of Christ sacrificed for us, as we ponder our inner life with God in this season of Lent, I pray that it will be a symbol of utterly, completely devoting and consecrating ourselves more deeply, more fully, and surrendering all that we have, all that we love, and all that we are to the one who died for us. And so it is appropriate to know and to sing, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Holy God, I thank you this morning that your Holy Spirit can illuminate our hearts and even convict us for we, what we need to give over to you. We do not fear you so that we won't continue in sin. But Lord, we love you and know that you are a faithful and trustworthy God, that you love us with all of yourself. A love that went to the cross, that full extent of your love displayed. And so I pray this morning, through this sacrament of Holy Communion, Spirit, move within us and give us the grace we need to respond. In Christ's name, amen.